one place, and then the second place I'd like you to be in, because we will be referring to it during this lesson this morning, would be Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. All right, and let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come into this wonderful, beautiful building that you have provided for this community. Thank you for this church opening its doors to our ministry. We pray your blessing upon the church because of that. May they be a beacon of truth and light to this community and um, continue to keep their vision focused on you. Lord, we thank you for um, our health to be here. We thank you for this beautiful day and the warmth of it that you have provided for us. We thank you for the scripture that we can open it and learn more about you through the resident Holy Spirit within each and every one of us. We thank you that the Spirit points to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and that's our prayer this morning, that we would point to him, that everything that would be said here and thought here this morning would be to glorify him because he alone is worthy of all the praise and honor and glory. And we ask now that you would um, help us to focus on what your word has to teach us about the future, the near future, the time of the terrible tribulation, and then the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to him coming even sooner than the second coming. We look forward to him coming for us in the rapture. And we pray with all of our hearts that if there is one here who is not prepared to be a part of that fantastic experience, we pray today she would settle that issue by making sure that you, Jesus, are, it, are her Lord and Savior. For we do pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, we're on part four of the Olivet Discourse, which is subtitled The Beginning of Sorrows. Of the three synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew most thoroughly directed attention to Christ's answer to his disciples' second question on the Mount of Olives, which was, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, which really would be age, the end of the age. That's in Matthew 24, 3. As we have discussed in the past, the Jews believed that the Messiah's coming simultaneously would terminate the first age of anticipating his arrival. So when he came, the first age of anticipation ended and the second age of the kingdom, which was promised throughout the Old Testament, would begin. Now, in answering the disciples' second question, the Lord proceeded to speak of signs that would forewarn Israel and anyone else who had ears to hear or eyes to see the signs would forewarn them of his approaching second coming to earth. Now, in our Olivet Discourse study, if you'll look, you've all got your notebooks, right? If you will look at the beginning, of, like the prologue pages to your, to your book, you'll see page Roman numeral number 7, which has the Olivet Discourse outline in it. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but it's in, I think it's like page 3 or something in the books, but it's a little Roman numeral 7. And you can see what we're doing here with this study. It's going to be a 10-part study altogether. We're now on part four. But we are currently in the third main outline division, which I've entitled The Sermon. We looked at the setting and the, what was the other thing? 
the subject and the setting, and now we're on the sermon. And we've already covered, if you look under the sermon, we've already covered the Lord's prophetic announcement of Jerusalem's destruction, which took place in 70 AD. We covered that several weeks ago. And now currently we're in the process of discussing um, his panoramic account of the end times. Do you see that there on the outline? And Matthew 24, verses 4 to 31, is our primary text. But I do want you to be aware of the fact that this, his answer to this question is also found over in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Now, in the first eight verses of Matthew 24, Christ foretold of four sign events that will occur during the first half of the tribulation and those four sign events I have entitled just to stick with D's I have entitled deception we looked at that last time the false Christ and uh, the second sign he gave them is all about destruction and the next one is death and the third one is disturbances that's what we'll be covering today destruction death and disturbances Now, we've also talked in the past, I believe it was last time, we talked a lot about the tribulation. You learned a lot of different names for the tribulation period, didn't you? Which are given to us in scripture. It is the seven-year period of time on earth that follows the rapture of the church and immediately precedes Christ's second coming and then his establishment of his earthly kingdom, you know, Obviously, earthly means it's right here, literally, on earth. And how many years will it last? One thousand years. And we know that from the book of Revelation. Now, the prophet Daniel, back in the Old Testament, under divine inspiration, told us that this seven-year period of time would be divided into two parts of equal duration. Now, if you take seven years and divide them in half, that means that each of those two parts are how many years long? Three and a very good class. Three and a half years. <laughs> you guys are so smart. From Daniel, we find out that um, the tribulation is divided into two parts of equal duration. So in what is known as the famous 70 weeks prophecy, Daniel said this. Now, in, this is in Daniel 9.27. He was talking about the Antichrist when he wrote, and he, the Antichrist shall confirm the covenant with many. And there he is talking about predicting when the Antichrist would sign a covenant, a peace treaty arrangement with Israel, which Isaiah calls their covenant with death. Because he signed an agreement with the Antichrist himself. He says he'll do that for one week. And the the Hebrew word that is used for week speaks of a week of seven years. So we know that this is a seven-year period. We know it elsewhere from Scripture as well. But the first time we heard about it being a week long, seven years, was from Daniel. And then he says, in the midst of the week, he who... The Antichrist shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease... Okay, so sacrifices are going to be going on. That's why we know that there is going to be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and the Jews will again be offering their sacrifices. And the Antichrist is going to sign a seven-year peace agreement with them. And in the middle of that seven-year period, he changes his mind 
and he sets up an uh, abomination of desolation in the temple. All the sacrifices of the Jews are over with, and he wants to be worshipped. Exactly. He sets up himself in, in the image. Anyway, so some 500 years after, after Daniel, now the Lord Jesus comes along, and in his Olivet Discourse, he names the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and he names the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, in verse 8 of Matthew 24, he gives us the name for the first three and a half years. They're called what? The beginning of sorrows. And we looked at the word sorrows and said, you know, it's the same as labor pains. It's just the beginning of labor pains. And what is his name for the last three and a half years that the Lord gives? The Great Tribulation, you can read that in verse 21. He calls it the Great Tribulation. So, the Tribulation, or the time of Jacob's trouble, or the distress of nations, or all the other na- the indignation, all the different names that are given for that seven-year period. The first three and a half years, ladies, are called the beginning of sorrows. What's the middle point called? Abom- abomination of desolation. What's the last three and a half years called? The Great Tribulation. Okay, so that's just a a summary of the whole thing. Now, the first of the four sign events that Jesus gave that said would occur in the beginning of sorrows is, the first one is worldwide deception through a proliferation of false Christ, which will culminate with the greatest deceiver of all, the Antichrist himself. And that is what we talked about two weeks ago, all the false Christ that there will be in those first three and a half years. There have been many in the ch- during the church age since the, fir- the real Christ came, but during those first three and a half years, there'll be many, many people coming and saying, I am the Christ, and they will all culminate in that evil one, the, the Antichrist himself, who will be empowered by Satan. This first sign of the Lord's return at the second coming corresponds with the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse given to us in Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. And he will issue forth when the Lord Jesus in heaven opens the first seal judgment of the tribulation period. And I'm going to talk about that more toward the end of this lesson when the Lord Jesus receives the title deed to this earth and cracks open its seals, seven seals, one by one, and the judgments of the tribulation issue forth. But when he breaks the first seal, the one who comes forth is riding on a white horse. And some people mistakenly think that that is Christ. It is not Christ. Following that white horse comes bloodshed, wars and rumors of wars and disease and pestilences. We go into the tribulation. That man on the white horse symbolizes the Antichrist. Exactly. He has a bow with no arrows in it. He's carrying a bow, which means he will be put into his position peacefully, perhaps through election, the election process, very possibly. But that rider on the first horse uh, begins the first of the the seal judgments. And it corresponds to the first of the four sign events of the beginning of sorrows that we are given here in the Olivet Discourse. So I just want you to know that there is a parallel between Revelation 6 and Matthew 24, verses 1 to 8. 
And so now what we want to do is we want to move to the second sign the Lord gave his men to tell them when would, when would they know that he was soon returning and it would be the end of that, that age. Uh, and that second age, is, I mean, sign is that of destruction by way of wars and rumors of wars. So let's look at it. It's just a very short little passage in Matthew 24, verses 6, and the very first part of verse 7. After Jesus gave them the first sign, he said in verse 4, if you look back, take heed that no man deceive you. That's deception, false Christ. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. First sign, deception. Now, second sign is destruction. He says, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Stop right there. That's the second sign right there. Okay. Now, this second labor pain will be that of intensified warfare among the nations and kingdoms of the world. You see, looking down the long corridors of history to this future time, the Lord Jesus, who can see the end from the beginning, he spoke to those who will be living during the time when the tribulation begins. And he said to them, in effect, when you hear... And in the Greek, that verb here is given in the continuous tense. So it means when you hear and keep on hearing over and over again about a talk of war and rumors of wars, then you may know that my return will be soon. He says these things must take place. And Luke, in his parallel account, tells us they must take place first. They must take place first. By the way, it's interesting that over in Luke's account, instead of saying when you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, he says when you will hear of wars and commotions. We never kind of, we always say wars and rumors of wars, don't we? But I, I kind of like Luke's version. Wars and commotions. And uh, Jesus says, anyway, these things must. And we know when Jesus says must, what is it? It's going to happen. Absolutely. It's a must. He says it must take place first. He says the end is not yet. However, um, the labor pains that will end in his return and, and the birth of... I don't know why I'm saying that. Forget that comment. Anyway, it's interesting um, to think about this fact. When he says when you will hear... He's talking to the tribulation people. When you will hear and keep on hearing of wars and rumors of wars, wars and commotions. And, we're, and we know he's talking globally because he's talking about nations and kingdoms rising up against one another. You know, back in his day, people couldn't hear about wars and rumors of wars taking place globally, could they? They wouldn't even know if, let's say, you lived in Israel, you wouldn't even know of a war going on in nearby Syria, or over in Jordan until somebody on a horse came and told you about it. You might not even know what's going on down in Moore County unless somebody, you know, rode up here and told you about it. But he said you'll continually hear. It's like every time you turn on the television, you'll be hearing about something going on somewhere in the world. So the Lord Jesus, didn't he know about cell phones and blackberries and satellite dishes and television? You can hear about these things. We can hear almost in a matter of seconds, live, what's going on in the war in Afghanistan, can't we? 
So, again, it shows us who he is. In concurrence with the Lord's analogy of birth pains, sorrows, the implication is that news of wars and rumors of wars will increase. And we hear about them today. But he's saying they're going to increase, just like a woman's labor pains. There will be more news of worldwide turmoil the closer his return gets. And yet the Lord tells those end times future believers, those who have placed their faith and trust in him, that they should not be, what's it say? Troubled. He says, don't be troubled. And Luke says, don't be terrified when you hear of the increase of global warfares. Why? I mean, I could easily empathize with people being terrified hearing about wars going on on a global scale continuously and increasingly and more compactly. I get scared when I turn on the news every day, don't you? Get terrified and I have to remind myself who the Lord is. But he's saying to these people, don't be troubled. Of course, they're believers. He's talking to believers. Don't be troubled. Don't be terrified. Everybody else needs to be troubled and terrified. But uh, he says they shouldn't be. And why is that? Well, because these destructive events are part of the sign evidence that God's predicted plan is unfolding in perfect accord with his will. Don't be terrified. It's actually exciting. It should be exciting because you see that I am intervening again in human history and everything is coming to pass just as I have said it would. Yes, you know, you might die for your faith. You might be martyred for your faith, but don't be terrified about that. Just be one second, and the next moment you'll be with me in glory. As damaging and as devastating as these things will be, and they will be horrific, yet he says they must come to pass first. They're part of God's overall plan and purpose for both Israel and for the entire world. Now, currently, as you know, Many nations of the world are stockpiling nuclear and atomic and chemical and bacterial weapons of mass destruction. Are they not? And it is very easy to identify with people being terrified at the thought of global war, which is clearly what the Lord referred to. As I said, when he referred to nation rising up against nation and kingdom rising up against kingdom. You see, it wasn't until the time of the 20th century in which all of us were born, right? Nobody here was born in the 19th century, were you? (laughs) Dottie, you were close, but... (laughs) And I don't think anybody here was born in the 21st century. I said that yesterday. I said, unless you were born... And then I thought, no, you'd have to be 10 years old, less than 10 years old. And I don't think we have anybody under 10 here, do we? But anyway, we're all born in the 20th century. It wasn't until that century that um, that actually the whole... The, there was warfare was on a worldwide scale. We had two wars in the last century, didn't we? Well, at least two that were called world wars. We had World War I and we had World War II. The return of the Jews to the land of their forefathers has been characterized by two world wars. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but this is really fascinating. And you can see how God was preparing everything to bring Israel back to the land, just as he had promised he would do in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament. 
in those two world wars, World War I, God prepared the land of Israel for the people. You know, the land before World, I, world War I, you know, after the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the world back in 70 A.D., the land was empty, and then um, different peoples occupied it at different times. But right before World War I, it was occupied by the Turks from the Ottoman Empire. And General, the British General Allenby was the one who pushed the Turks out of Israel after, you know, during World War I. Around 1918, the uh, Balfour Declaration was signed, and Israel became part of the British Empire instead of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. He also pull, pushed the Turks out of Syria and Jordan as well. God was preparing the land for the Jewish people. Well, what happened after World War II? He prepared the Jewish people for the land. They were ready. They had experienced anti-Semitism. Six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. And the Jewish people were prepared to return to their land, weren't they? God was all about fulfilling prophecy in those two world wars. I don't know if you ever saw it from his perspective, but that's really all, all that it was about. Um, because these two wars led to the founding of the state of Israel. Now, World War I resulted in the deaths of 14 million people. And chemical weapons of mass destruction were used for the first time. World War II caused the death of approximately 55 million people. And uh, in World War II, as you know, atomic weapons of mass destruction were used for the first time. Now, World War II, they said, was to be the war that ended... All wars, yeah. But since its end, there has been the Cold War. I remember, you know, as a child, always hearing about the Cold War, which was basically the East against the West, you know, communism against democracy. And today, what have we got? The terrorist war. It's a global, basically almost global affair going on. Since the end of World War II, there have been more than 50 million death victims of countless attacks between nations and within nations. There have been dozens of, of limited wars, numerous political assassinations, at least 100 rebellions for independence, and approximately 200 revolutions of either a political, economic, racial, or religious nature. But as terrible as this history has been, just in the last 60 years, it's nothing when compared to what the Bible says lies ahead. The Bible predicts at least five future wars. There will be the War of Gog and Magog. You've heard about that, Ezekiel 38 and 39, if you haven't. And is the world prepared for such a war? Oh, yeah. Russia will join with Iran and other Muslim countries to come down and attack Israel. Read about it. The War of Gog and Magog. Then there will be the War of the uh, uh, King of the South, 
who will come to battle with the Antichrist. There will be the, the war with the kings of the east. Remember when, what is it, 200 million from the, the east will march, right, probably China, will march across the dried up Euphrates River to again try to attempt to battle with the Antichrist. Then there will be the very famous battle of Armageddon. And even after the millennial kingdom, there's going to be another war, worldwide war, when Satan is loosed from the bottomless pit and has a huge amount of people who have even lived during the millennial kingdom and are willing to join him in a rebellion against Christ, which will be very short-lived. But yet that is the fifth war, global war, that will take place according to scripture in the future. Well, this second sign of Christ's return corresponds with the second horseman of the apocalypse described in Revelation 6-4. The Antichrist's false peace for Israel, you know, will be very temporary, and it will end in full-blown bloodshed and worldwide warfare. He may promise peace, which he will, and the world will fall for it. You know, the whole Israel especially is saying peace, peace. What they want more than anything is peace. And so they'll fall for it. I was thinking because I read something or heard something. I can't ever remember which is what is what. Because I read a lot and then I hear a lot. As I travel, I'm always listening to tapes. And I've gotten all these tapes lately on from prophecy conferences. And I just can't get enough of them. I listen to them over and over again. So I, somewhere in there, uh, I heard that what might happen is that the Antichrist, who will be the head of the revived Roman Empire, which could be, you know, a European thing, or it could be even a global community where the whole world consists of ten big uh, uh, sections, you know, might not just be ten nations, but ten parts of the global community. And he will be like the president of it. And, um, And he may offer Israel to be one of those members. If it is the European Union, he may invite her to be part of the European Union, promising her, you know, acceptance. And did you know that it takes a seven-year trial period before they confirm you as an official member of the European Union? Isn't that interesting? When I heard that, I thought, that makes sense. You know, he'd make confirm seven years. We're going to put you on a trial period and see if we'll accept you fully into the European Union. Didn't I just hear that Greece got kicked out? Am I the only one that heard that because she's bankrupt? Yeah, I thought so. She was in during her maybe seven year period and she didn't make it because she went bankrupt. And so Greece has been kicked out. I don't know, but that is really interesting to speculate. Now I'm never going to finish on time because I went off on a footnote. All right. Anyway, the the Antichrist will promise peace, but of course, it's temporary. It's a false peace. The only one who can offer this world peace is who? True peace is the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the red color of the second horseman, no, the second horse, the horse is red, not the horse man. (laughs) But it symbolizes, parallels with the second sign of the Olivet Discourse, it's red. So it symbolizes blood and warfare. Revelation 6, 4 says that the people will kill one another. You can go and look at what I'm talking about if you're in Revelation. They will kill one another, which even indicates revolutionary fighting within nations. 
And, you know, not only will nation be fighting against nation, but people within nations will be fighting against each other. And this agrees with what the prophet Ezekiel predicted about that war of Gog and Magog. In the latter days, he said, every man's sword shall be against his brother. That's Ezekiel 38, 21. And even the word used to describe the sword, it's not the word used to speak of a soldier's battle sword. It is the word that speaks of an assassin's dagger, you know, like the zealots would carry when they wanted to slit the throats of the Roman soldiers. That's the word for sword that is used. And this suggests that people will be murdering one another in cold bloodshed, even people within their own countries, even their own countrymen, and in some cases even their own family members because we find out that children will even turn in their believing parents. They will be so brainwashed that they'll turn in their parents to the authorities and their parents will be martyred before their eyes or whatever and it'll just be horrific. So that's destruction. Let's look next at the the next sign, which is death. And there's just a few words that describe it in verse 24 of Matthew. I'm sorry, chapter 24 and verse 7 just look at the middle part of verse 7 where it says and there shall be famines and pestilences that's what i'm calling death obviously you know with the increase of all the the wars global wars it's natural that the next birth pain the next sorrow to signal the soon return of the lord jesus would be that of a vastly increased death toll not only will huge numbers of people die in battle but many people worldwide will also lose their lives as a result of both the increased and intensified famines and pestilences that will be occurring in this first three and a half years now what do i mean by pestilences diseases yes we'll get to them the dark shadow of famine already casts itself heavily in our world today but according to the lord's prophetic words things are going to get worse today did you know that half the world goes to bed hungry and that 500 million people are in danger of starving to death today did you know that the mortality rate of small children in some third world countries is 60 times worse than what it is here in the united states Awful. Did you know that the many, many, now the book I read said half, which it was hard for me to believe it could be that high, but it said half of the world's preschool age children um, are, are so mal, have such a um, malnutrition that it has affected either their mental or their physical growth. That's, that's awful to think about. So if malnutrition already stalks the face of the globe today and if death from starvation takes at least 30 people every minute of every day. So as we sit here for 60 minutes, what's, I don't know how many people would be, will be dying somewhere in the world, how many 30 times 60 is, but um, that's a lot, that's awful to think about. You know, here we're, we're, we have too much to eat, don't we? Yes, just look at me. Um, And man hasn't even entered into the beginning of sorrow, so I cannot imagine what it will be like then. He said it must happen. And then there is the fact that one of the worst byproducts of war and famine is the horror of pestilence. 
Now, during the First World War, 20 million, this is again one of those phenomenal figures, 20 million people died of flu, influenza. And another 6 million people died of typhus fever. I know some of my relatives, my ancestors died of those diseases. Some of you might know of people that did. But did you know that that is 12 million more people who died at the time of World War I, 12 million more died of diseases than died as a result of the war, you know, in battle. 12 million people more than the soldiers that died. That's incredible. You know, a, a real fear among medical scientists today is that with the overuse of all the new wonder drugs and the antibiotics and the sulfa drugs, that new drug-resistant bacteria have developed. Some of these new bacteria can de defy several antibiotics at one time. You know, uh, both the herpes virus and, and the AIDS viruses have so far defied all attempts by research scientists to find a cure. And at least 50 million people have been infected with the AIDS virus. Now, I know a few years ago we heard a lot about it, but it seems like lately we don't hear about it, so it's, you know, out of, we don't think about it. But did you know that 16,000 people a day worldwide become infected with the AIDS virus? According to a report from the World Health Organization, tuberculosis and malaria are, quote, gaining ground with unprecedented aggression, end of quote. Cholera and yellow fever are appearing in areas of the world where they thought they were totally safe. I mean, you and I don't go around fearing cholera or um, uh, yellow fever anymore, do we? But these things are beginning to pop up in places where people thought, well, we'll never see those again. Unless, uh, um, and new, then there's new infectious diseases like H1N1 that are popping up. And unless drastic measures are taken, physicians may find themselves, they fear, back in the pre-antibiotic days of the Middle Ages. And then there's drug addiction, which costs people, many, many people, their lives. And can you imagine if drug addiction is a problem today, what it will be like in the end times? Many people will be taking all kinds of drugs just to get through the horrors of every day. And you can hardly blame them. You know, they'll be, they will be so terrified that they'll just try to do anything to numb themselves. And did you know that for every heroin addict, there are 15 people who are addicted to alcohol? So again, you can imagine what it will do. That's today's statistics. You can imagine then, as the, the, the pains intensify and increase, like labor pains, how much worse it'll be the time of the beginning of sorrows. And I haven't even gotten to the Great Tribulation. It certainly has not helped the scientists battle with disease to realize that man, in his unlimited insanity, has added pestilence to his warfare battle plans. 
Nations have been stockpiling bacterial arsenals that can infect entire populations with all kinds of varied diseases. Likewise, they have accumulated chemical agents that can literally destroy a major city with each explosion. And these types of inhumane, isn't man so kind to himself, to one another? Incredible. You really see how sin-cursed this world is. But these types of inhumane weapons can be ground into fine powder, as we experienced back in 2001 with the anthrax scare. And they can be um, placed into a nation's water supply. Or they can be sprayed into favorable winds and kill millions and millions of people. Now, leading nations of the world, the leading nations, have made promises to not use these incredibly frightening weapons. But common sense and historical experience tell us that promises are easily... Did you know that every peace treaty that has ever been written has been broken? (laughs) Uh, Especially when nations are at war, and especially when nations are power-hungry, or especially when nations are hungry, starving to death, or when they are ruled by satanically inspired terrorists. And yes, I am politically incorrect, and I don't care. I'm not going to call them enemy combatants. Even more scary to think about is the fact that there are smaller nations ruled by evil dictators or religious fanatics that today have or even are very near, very near to having nuclear capacity and they have not made such promises. And even if they did make such promises, they don't give a hoot about breaking those promises because they believe the end justifies the means. And they have no qualms about lying either. They would not care one bit if they lied to the whole world's face and said, no, we'll never use these. They're for medical research. They don't care. All they care care about is accomplishing their own agendas. Also, as far as pestilence is concerned, one of the most destructive, and don't give it away, one of the most destructive creatures on the face of the earth is, who wants to take a guess, besides Miss Dobie? (laughs) Yes, very good. Did you hear her? You heard her. See, Big Mouth? Well, I had a really good... (laughs) Ooh, you did? That's what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. Right. Yes, we'll we'll get to all that. You guys are just too smart. But one of, the, one of the ladies answered yesterday when I said, what is the most destructive creature on the face of the earth? She said, man. I said, yeah, that, actually, you're right. <laughs> it is man. But speaking of the other kind of creatures, you know, besides man, it is the rat. Did you know that if 95% of a rat population is exterminated, that the remaining 5% will repopulate itself to the original number within a year's time. Ugh. Ugh. Like bunnies, you know, they're very, very prolific. And by the way, speaking of the four, of the, um, I'm going to talk about the fourth horse, the, the pale horse. Am I on four now? I can't remember. I've lost track. But anyway, the, the pale horse, uh, the, you know, the horseman of the apocalypse, 
Yeah, I did the white and the red. Oh, yeah, the the black was famine. Did I skip him? Okay. Well, the, the, the third horse is black. He represents famine. I will talk about that at the end of the lesson. And then the fourth horse is a pale, sickly green color. And he represents uh, the one who sat upon him is called death. And who follows behind him? Anybody remember? Hell. It says death and hell follows behind him. And scripture says that power was given unto them. That's death and hell over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with pestilence. That's what we've been talking about. And with the beasts of the earth, it says. Now, the rat is a resiliently adaptable, destructive, prolific beast of the earth. And he is found everywhere on this earth. You don't just find rats in India. You find them everywhere where you find man. Everywhere there's men, there are rats. Did you know that this ugly rodent, and I'm sorry if you're like one of the girls yesterday who likes rats. She's seeing too many movies called Ratatouille. Or <laughs> but I think they're ugly, and I don't like to see rats. And I know Terry doesn't since she got bit by one, but this ugly rodent has been the cause of death, the more deaths than all the wars of history. What? All the wars of history, more people have died because of the rat. Isn't that an incredible truth? It's true. Rats carry with them, as these girls said, as many as 35 different diseases. And their fleas carry the, bubon <laughs> the bubonic plague, which killed one-third of Europe's population in the 14th century. Now, in 1994, which wasn't that long ago, in India... Thousands and thousands of people died of the pneumonic, you know, pneumonia, pneumonic plague, which was a result of Indian, India's huge rat population. Why does India have such a huge rat population, do you think? Because they will not kill the rats. And so they just keep growing. And why won't they kill the rats? Them might be Uncle George, right, or Aunt Mary, or Grandma Sue, because they believe in reincarnation and you don't know who the rats might have been in a previous life. Now, it's, it's a silly, it's absurd, but it affect you know, what you believe affects what you do. And so they let the rats go and many, many people die. The fleas of rats also carry typhus, not only bubonic plague, but typhus, which killed an estimated two hundred million people in four centuries. So the Lord's uh, end time sign of death by way of worldwide famines and pestilences really is something that does not stretch the imagination of, of our minds, does it? We can understand what he's saying will be happening in the end times because we see evidence of it even in our world today. So it's not a great stretch of our imagination to picture diseases of all types attacking people on a worldwide scale with millions and billions of people dying. All right, let's look at the last sign, the fourth sign, which is that of disturbances. And this is the last part of verse 7 in Matthew 24, where it's, he says, and earthquakes in diverse places. Now, in addition to this description of false Christ 
the worldwide destruction of warfare, and the massive increase in the death toll due to both famines and diseases, there will also be dreadful physical disturbances, not only on the land, earthquakes are on land, right? But Luke, in his parallel account, he tells us that there will be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens that will be taking place during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. That is in Luke 21, 11. So not only will earthquakes be going on, but things in the heavenlies that will tend to terrify and trouble people. But believers don't need to be troubled and terrified. Now, well, some, some people might wonder why, you know, about the uniqueness of earthquakes. They will say, well, why is that a sign of the end times, you know, in the Lord's soon return, since the earth has always experienced earthquakes? Well, you know, the word earth has always experienced wars and always experienced um, death by famines and, and all these things. But what we have to again remember is that he is speaking of labor pains, sorrows, which means that they increase noticeably in intensity and in frequency. Now, as, wouldn't you know it, as I was preparing for this lesson, and the Lord gave me two weeks so that my February issue of Prophecy Today newsletter could come in and I could read it and give you these new statistics, but it came in my mailbox, and wouldn't you know, the headline was, From Haiti to Home, The Impact of Approaching Global Earthquakes. And I couldn't wait to read it because I thought, ah, I'm going to incorporate this into my lesson. As we know, a little over a month ago, in just a matter of a few fleeting seconds, a massive 7.0 magnitude earthquake brought great devastation, death, destruction, and distress to the people of the island of Haiti. It's estimated now that over 200,000, my husband said 250,000, I'm not sure what the latest statistic is, but many people perished with a, uh, many more equal number of those who were injured, many of them very seriously, and over three million were left in desperate need, having lost everything, their homes and everything. And it's going to take, and they were poor to begin with, it's going to take the relief effort years to restore some type of normalcy to the lives of the Haitians, particularly those living in the area of the capital city of Port-au-Prince. But the warning of Scripture, as we find many places, not just in the Olivet Discourse in the book of Revelation, but also in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and other places, the warning of Scripture is that what happened in Haiti will happen in diverse places all over this earth in the last days. Jesus said that one of the signs that will precede his return will be an increase in the frequency and in the magnitude of earthquakes. And with earthquakes come their natural resultant phenomena. If it's in a mountainous area, oftentimes with an earthquake will come a volcano. And from volcanoes, you know, all kinds of dust and steam and gases are spewed into the upper atmosphere, causing in the latter days, as it says in Revelation 6:12 in the end times, the sun to be darkened. You know, with all those gases and dust up in the air from the volcano, you look up and the sun will and the moon will appear as blood red. And that's exactly what is described in Revelation. 
And also, what is another resultant phenomena from an earthquake? We saw a few years ago in Indonesia. Tsunamis, tidal waves, tsunamis. An examination of current geological records shows us that what Scripture, what Jesus predicted, is already coming to pass, and we have not even yet entered into the seven-year tribulation. Earthquakes are increasing in frequency and magnitude. Now, again, something I read somewhere, and I've got to get a system of filing better because I read these things, and what I should do is immediately cut them out and put them in little files, but I didn't do that, and I can't find where I read it. But I actually read that earthquake, if you look at the earthquake charts and how they've been, you know, they've been charting them for some time now, that as we're getting closer to the ends, the end, it looks, they, they even use this description, it said it looked like a contraction monitor for a woman in pregnancy, that they're getting higher and closer together. And we're not in the tribulation yet. Close. And if we're close to that, you know what that means for you and I, the rapture. <laughs> but this is a fascinating statistic. This is just, this is really amazing to me. Earthquakes um, are not only increasing in frequency and magnitude, but a list of the largest earthquakes since 1900 shows that 71% of them have happened since Israel became a nation in 1948. Whoa, that just gives me chill bumps. These, this isn't in your notes, so sorry about that. I just got this from this issue. And some of you get that newsletter, so you have it too. Three, three of the, and now I can say four, because um, I got this from another book, but four of these earthquakes have occurred in the past five years. Geological records also show a 42.8 increase in world earthquakes between the years 2000 and 2008. I didn't have, the book was written in 2008, so I don't have statistics past 2008. But for a 42.8% increase just in those eight years. All of this is leading up to the grand finale at the end of the tribulation when the most powerful and destructive earthquake in the history of Earth will take place. One that will literally cause this world, you know, we have an axis in our, in our, on our globe, and it's a little bit tilted, but this final earthquake is going to actually topple the world on its axis and alter the topography of the whole world. If you don't believe me, read Revelation 16, verses 18 to 20. Now, what is it that's going to cause this colossus earthquake that shakes the world so powerfully that the cities of the nations fall? It tells us that all the corrupt cities of the whole world are going to fall, just like all those buildings in Haiti came tumbling down. Except for one city. One city will not fall. That city is Jerusalem, but it will be split into three parts. What causes this earthquake? Well, Zechariah 14, we've been in that verse several times lately. Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4 tell us, Zechariah said that when the nations of the earth are gathered against Jerusalem to destroy her, here's what he says, quote, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave, split, in the midst 
thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be very a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall be removed toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Zechariah's description is the biblical description of a huge earthquake. And what caused it? Jesus Christ returned to this earth. When the Lord Jesus returns to earth to rescue Israel from annihilation by the Gentile nations of the world who have gathered against her at the Battle of Armageddon, when he returns with his armies following him, and you and I will be there, his, I hope you will, I hope you're born again and you will be part of his army, but his feet will then touch down from the same spot, the Mount of Olives, from which he ascended to heaven back in Acts 1. And when those mighty, powerful, holy, angry feet of the glorified, resurrected second person of the living God again touch down on this planet, Everyone on the face of the earth is going to know it. The whole earth is going to topple on her axis and all the cities will fall. He won't be arriving as he did the first time. He won't be arriving after the final physical birth pain of an obscure young woman named Mary in an obscure little village called Bethlehem with no one but a few shepherds being advised this next time he will arrive after the final birth pain of mother earth and everyone will have notification revelation 16:20 which talks about this earthquake continues with the description of it it says and every island fled away there won't be any islands haiti has thought she has seen something terrible in this earthquake, guess what? I've got bad news for Haiti because she's part of an, she's an island with the Dominican Republic. A whole island is going to sink and disappear. All the Hawaii? Oh no! <laughs> All the islands are going to disappear, and the mountains. It says are, will not be found. You see, apparently, at the return of the Lord, the gentle rolling topography of the original pre-flood world will be restored. You know, Dr. Henry Morris, who's deceased now, but he was a hydrologist and a geologist, he wrote this. He said, quote, The violent earthquakes and upheavals of the tribulation period will have leveled all the polluted cities of a sinful world. The better to facilitate the erection of new, clean, peaceful communities at the beginning of the millennium. These great land movements will also have eliminated the great mountain ranges and islands of the world, filling up the ocean depths and restoring gentle, globally habitable habitable topography and geography all over the world as it had been in the pre-flood age before the cataclysmic upheavals of the great flood. As Isaiah the prophet foretold, now this is in Isaiah chapter 40 verses uh, 4 and 5, Isaiah said, every valley shall be exalted. All the valleys of the world, you know, Grand Canyon, all the, well that's not really a valley, but all the valleys will be exalted. They will all be lifted up. And Isaiah said, And every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, 
I guess that all the crooked rivers will be straight <laughs> and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. If the mouth of the Lord hath spoken, it's a must, isn't it? You know what's going to happen when the Lord comes back at the second coming and he's going to get this world ready for the millennial kingdom. And in the millennial kingdom, the world is going to go back to what it was like before the flood. You know, it was at the time of the flood that everything uh, occurred, the Grand Canyon and the mountains and the valleys, etc., etc. So he's going to, when his feet touch down, that earthquake happens and the world shakes and the world is going to go back. The, you know, everything's going to be level. And you say, well, how can that be? Because if, if the mountains come down and go into the oceans, that's going to put, push up the the water level of the oceans and there'll be just tsunamis everywhere you know the, the ocean water will cover all the land well do you remember during the great tribulation the sun the heat of the sun is going to be intensified seven times do you know what that'll cause massive evaporation i believe that what the lord is going to do is going to return the water vapor canopy the firmament that originally was around this world he's going to return that because we know men used to live to be very old, didn't they? And that's because they were protected from the rays of the sun. You know, it's the rays of the sun that age us. And so with the, when they had the, the water vapor firmament canopy around this earth, it was like a terrarium. Is that the word? Yeah, terrarium. And people live long lives. Well, the Lord's going to do that because in the millennial kingdom, we know people again will live long, long, long lives. And so that makes sense that it'll take all that extra water and, and build. See, you're all following me. I'm glad about that. But that's exciting to me. So then, deception, destruction, death, and disturbances during the tribulation will not only exist as they have for hundreds of years, but they will increase in both intensity and in frequency. Now, since coming events cast their shadows before them, we have been considering the shadows. Things have been happening in this world that we can chart statistically. And these things foreshadow and illustrate the shape of things to come. Since shadows can be discerned in today's world, we would be wise to realize the soon return of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember how he reprimanded the people of his day in Luke chapter 12 when he said that they, you know, they could read very well the signs of the, the face of the sky to determine the weather, what the weather would be the next day while they were miserably failing to discern the numerous spiritual signs that he had repeatedly during you know his entire ministry been giving to them because of their willful disbelief they were unable to discern the very time that they had anxiously anticipated for centuries the time of the coming of their messiah they missed it i don't know how they could have but you know I've got hindsight, so maybe I would have too. But the signs were all around them, who he was. You know, even coming on the very day predicted, et cetera, et cetera, and they missed it. What do you think Jesus Christ would say to people today? Very same thing. He would scorn men today for being so meticulously concerned 
about being able to predict the weather patterns and the next earthquake or the next tsunami or the next hurricane, you know, the path of the next hurricane, while taking no heed whatsoever, or the next global warming, you know, <laughs> uh, taking heed, no heed whatsoever of the shadows of those things that indicate his soon return. So as Christians, it's important to consider the shadows of these things. You know, we're not going to be here. I hope none of you will be here to witness the signs themselves. But we can indeed, as I think I've shown you, we can see the, uh, the, uh, the shadows of these things casting, casting their deep shadows into our own generation. And we need to sound the alarm to those out there. Make sure that they're in with us on the ra- in the rapture so they do not have to go through these horrible, horrible judgments. So he concluded his description of the labor uh, pain signs that will signal his return by saying, look at verse 8, all these things. Now, what things? What things? Now you know all these things. False Christs, wars and rumors of wars and commotions, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. All these are what? Just the beginning of sorrows. Now, I know I'm just, I've got just a few minutes here. I wanted to point out, as I promised I would do, the parallel with what we just read in these four signs at the beginning of sorrows, how they parallel the eschatological events, meaning end times events, that are described to us by John in Revelation 6. So go over to Revelation 6 if you're not there. Uh, Yes, I think this is in your notes. Yes, it is, it is. Now, in Revelation 6, 1, Jesus Christ is described as who? The lamb, the lamb. He's portrayed with a scroll in his hand, okay? And that scroll symbolizes, pictures, the title deed to this earth. In effect, it represents the will and testament of God. God created the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? The whole universe is God's. It has always belong to him it is his by right of creation psalm 24 1 the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof now god has the title deed to this earth because he created god gave dominion over the earth to adam he didn't give the title deed to the earth to adam but he gave dominion of this earth to Adam. In other words, Adam was to reign over this earth. He was to he was to be its tenant possessor. But when Adam sinned, he lost his God-given dominion to who? To whom? The enemy usurper, Satan, who is now referred to in scripture as the god, small g, of this world. Satan is temporarily occupying territory that he does not properly possess since he does not have the title deed to this earth. Who has the title deed to this earth today? God. God has always had the title deed. No one else has ever had to this day. No one else has ever had the title deed except God. In fact, he has never not had the title deed since he created the earth and the universe. The only person able to redeem the earth and free her and man from the oppression 
that she has suffered under the reign of the evil usurper is one who must be a kinsman redeemer to man, which is so beautifully portrayed to us in the person of Boaz in the book of Ruth. This kinsman redeemer of mankind and earth must not only be directly related to God, must be the son of God, but he must also be directly related to man, to Adam. He must not only be the son of God, he must be the son of Adam, the son of man. And also, he must be willing to purchase the title deed. But it goes even further. His willingness must be accompanied by his ability to pay the purchase price. You might be willing to buy something, but if you don't have the ability to pay for it, you still can't pay for it, right? So he must not only be willing to be the earth and man's kinsman redeemer, but he must be able to. There's only one person with a capital P in the universe and in all of history who has met these most difficult qualifications. Would you say they're rather difficult? Do you think Moses of Crete or David Koresh or any of those creatures we looked at last time could meet these qualifications? Oh, yes, I am the son of God, and I can prove my genealogy all the way back through Abraham, David to Adam. You know, I've got records of that. And I not only can meet those qualifications, but I'm willing to pay the price, and I have the price to pay. What is the price to redeem this earth and mankind? A sinless life, sinless blood to shed. Only one person, only one individual is related to both God and Adam, and he is Christ, the God-man. Now, don't ever get it in your mind that Jesus Christ is the God-man, meaning he's 50% God and he's 50% man. That is not correct. He is fully God and fully man. He is 100% God and he is 100% man. That's the mystery of he is the God man, fully God, fully man. Fortunately for mankind and this earth, he was not only willing to purchase the title deed to this earth, he was also able to pay its price with his own sinless life and, and blood. Now, if you look back at Revelation 5 for a minute, John was able to see into the future. He was given a vision to see into the future. And he saw the moment when God gave the title deed of the earth to the only one in all the universe who was worthy to receive it. And who was that? A worthy lamb, Jesus Christ, who is also called not only the lamb, but the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the multitudinous host, when that moment took place, it hasn't taken place yet, by the way. It hasn't taken place yet. And I'm hoping you and I will be there to witness it. Perhaps we will be there to witness this. When God the Father hands over the title deed to this earth to God the Son, Jesus Christ, it says all the hosts of heaven break out into a majestic chorus. Here's what they say. Worthy is the Lamb, all of us say it, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's in verse 12. I should have told you that so you could recite it with me. (laughs) Jesus Christ alone is worthy to receive dominion over this earth because he alone paid in full its redemption price at the cross of Calvary. So the world is not only his by right of creation, 
because Christ also created the world with his father. It's his by right of creation, but it's also his by right of Calvary. He redeemed it. And when he receives that title deed, that scroll, which is sealed with seven seals, he will then be begin to take back what is rightfully his. He will take it by conquest. So we have by creation, by Calvary, and by conquest. One by one, who opens the seals? Satan? No, the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He is the one who breaks those seals. And with each breaking of the seven seals on that scroll, that title deed to the earth, um, that will, is what will begin the um, period on earth known as the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. When the first seal is broken, we already talked about this, a man on a white horse issues forth. That's in verse 2. He holds a bow but no arrow, meaning that he will come in a peaceful manner. Um, and he will be the epitome of all false Christs. He is the Antichrist who will deceive many into believing that he is the true Messiah. This, of course, parallels the first sign of the beginning of sorrows, which was regarding the proliferation of false Christ. When the second seal is broken, a rider emerges on a red horse, and the apostle John says power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And I talked about how that will be like even killing within families and nations. And there was given unto him a great sword. The Antichrist and his followers may conquer some nations peacefully. Others they may conquer and gain by way of assassination. Wouldn't be, it wouldn't be surprised if the Antichrist had some of his dupes killing some of the leaders of some of the nations in order to get them to be part of his global uh, empire. Now, the red of the second horse, we said, symbolizes blood and warfare, and it coincides with the second birth pain, which was um, about wars and rumors of wars. Well, then with the opening of the third seal, that's in verse 5, what results? A man riding on a black horse, and I told you black symbolizes in the scripture famine. I can give you a verse to prove that. Lamentations 5.10. Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. So when you see black in the scripture, it speaks of famine. Red speaks of blood, war. White speaks of, you know, purity or supposedly. The Antichrist is on a white horse because he's pretending to be Christ, all right? But in, in those times, we are told in Revelation 6, 6, that a man will only, he'll work all day and only earn enough money to feed himself. No, nothing left over for his family. Well, I hope he feeds his family first and not himself. But it tells us, if you go by the measurements given there in Revelation, that the world in the tribulation will have, in the beginning of the tribulation, will have one-eighth of the food supply that it had in New Testament times. So people will indeed be starving all over the world. When the fourth seal on the scroll is broken by the worthy lamb, the apostle John saw a fourth rider on a sickly pale green horse. And the one who sat on this horse was named Death and Hell followed behind him. Power was given to both Death and Hell to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, with pestilences and with what? Beasts of the, the earth. Now, I want to read in closing, I want to read something that I found, again, very fascinating from the Prophecy Today Ministries, and this was their January issue, January 2010. 
I've told you this before when we studied Revelation, but the Greek word for pale in our Bibles, we just see the word pale, don't we? Pale horse. The Greek word for this is a a sickly pale green. And this is very significant in our day because do you know that just in the last two decades, Islam has adopted this very color, this sickly pale green color, as their official color, Islam has. Their mosques and their prayer towers, their banners and their homes are highlighted with this color. Some Muslims believe that the use of this color will protect them from evil spirits. Many Muslims place this color on the doors and windows of their homes for this very reason. Now, what was the name of the person riding on this pale, sickly horse, green horse? Death. And what follows? Hell. You know what follows for all these Islams and Muslims who are not only killing themselves, but, you know, thinking that they're doing it because then they'll gain heaven and all the virgins? They might might have death, but you know what follows immediately? Not heaven. Now, for the Christian, death is followed by heaven. For the Muslim, much to their astonishment, they're going to find, they find that death is followed by hell. And it said in that same passage that one-fourth of the earth will be affected. And I read also in this newsletter that right now Muslims are, um, well, you know, their whole thing is jihad and win the world for Allah. And uh, their symbol, by the way, has a sword on it. You know, think of the uh, flag of Saudi Arabia has a sword on it. And it says here, power is given to them to use the sword. Um, What was I saying a minute ago? What? Yeah, one-fourth of the, thank you, (laughs) one-fourth of the earth. Right now they are um, killing, they say death to the infidel, death to the Jew, death to the Western world, death to America, the big Satan, you know, death to anybody who doesn't agree with us, and we don't even mind if we kill some of our own people either. You know, death to just about everybody. Death, Death is what their religion is all about. Our faith is all about life. Theirs is all about death. But what, right now they are persecuting people in one-fourth of the earth, which I thought was really interesting that this article pointed that out. While most religions do celebrate life and promote peace, this is not true of historical Islam as promoted by its founder, Muhammad, and his early adherents. They promoted a culture of death in the name of Allah, their God, and they still do today. Well, then, to summarize the first six sealed judgments that will begin the tribulation period, we've seen that the Antichrist will assume his power peacefully, but once he is in a position of great power, he will go forth conquering and to conquer. This will result in wars and great bloodshed, which will result in skyrocketing inflation due to food shortages, which will result, the result will be tremendous famines and many deaths due to not only famine, but diseases and rats and earthquakes and things going on in the heavens and the death toll in Haiti, even though in our day it is horrible, yet compared to the tribulation, 
it is minuscule. Do you know that according to Revelation 6.8 and Revelation 9.15, one half of the world's population will die in the first three and a half years of the tribulation? If you take today's statistics, and they're saying that there are approximately 7 billion people alive today on earth, if you take today's statistics, that would mean that each of each day of the first three and a half years of the tribulation, approximately five million people will die per day for three and a half years. Because it says half of the world's population will be will die in the first three and a half years. Now do you understand why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, 22, For then shall be great tribu- tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. He was saying there, if the tribulation went beyond seven years, guess what? There'd be no one left. No one left. I promise you, you don't want to be around for the tribulation. And I assure you, with all that I, I'm the authority of this book, that the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation. So if you have, I'm not talking pie in the sky stuff. This is, this is truth. These things must come to pass. They will come to pass. They're not spiritual. They're going to be literal. And you don't want to be around. So if you have any doubt whatsoever about your salvation, let's make sure we take care of that today, okay?